0: The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Please remain standing with me this morning as we continue reading through the 119th Psalm. This morning we'll be in verses 41 through 48. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord. Your salvation is according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me. For I trust in your word, and take not the word of truth utterly out my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your laws continually, forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame, for I find delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. And all God's people said, Amen. you may be seated.
1: Would you pray with me? Father God, as your children gathered together to, with the hopes to, to hear from you. Father, we recognize that unless, unless it's by the working of your spirit, there's nothing that's going to happen. There's no power in the preaching of men, there's no ability in in the hearing of natural ears. That there's absolutely nothing that we can do apart from your work. Apart from your grace. That's going to amount to a whole lot of anything. And so Father as we open your word and we desperately desire to see you here. Father I, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Father I pray that not a one of us would look to these things words on this page and assume that we have got them perfectly mastered, that Father, if you are the inexhaustible God, the infinite God, the God in whom there is no end, then we would be fools to think that we could come to your word and at any point shut it, put it on a shelf and say, I'm glad I've got that all figured out. We thank you for what you've revealed, and, Father, we know that there's much more to be seen. So we ask that you would do that now, that you would calm my mind and my heart, that you would steady my tongue, that you would strengthen these people to hear. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I do want to tell you how much you've blessed me this morning. We need to do that more often. What do you think? So we return this morning to our verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. This is now our ninth Lord's Day together to look at this magnificent book. And my hope, my prayer for you as a people, as I've just offered, as I've continued to offer week after week, my hope and my prayer for you, it echoes that the the Apostle Paul offered over this church in Ephesus some 2,000 years ago. We'll get to it eventually here in this first chapter in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, might give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, that having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you might know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. greatness of the power of God towards us who believe, that you would recognize just whom you have been united to in your belief. And that from there, by the working of his spirit and the, the power of his word, As God grants you eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to behold all that he is in Christ, that you might grow week after week, day after day, having devoted yourself to this word, that you might grow in your knowledge of God and all that he is and all that he has done and all of his matchless power for you. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that that vision, the vision of what you see in God, that it would inform your worship that it would drive your praise, not simply in this room for an hour on each Sunday morning, but in the whole of your life, your head and your heart, your mind and your soul, the whole of who you are bound up in seeing God and giving expression to the satisfaction that you find in Him. Rejecting the empty emotionalism that seems to rule the day and devoting yourself to glorifying God by giving expression to who He is. He doesn't need you to make excuses for him. He doesn't need you to imagine him in some way that he's not. He doesn't need you to formulate some God of your imagination. The God of the universe is most glorified when you see him as he is. And then you watch your lips and you watch your thoughts and you guard your hearts to make sure that you're only fixed on him, the real him. Understand that anything that you're going to come up with, it's going to be a whole lot worse let me paint you a picture that perhaps will help. I married a beautiful woman. Chuck, that's one time I've referenced her today. He keeps score for me. Any picture I seek to draw of her, no matter how hard I try, it will be much, much worse than she really is. Now You must know that the gulf that exists between my artistic abilities and the beauty of my wife it is infinitely smaller than the gulf that exists between your imagination and the infinitely glorious God. Anything you would paint in your mind, any picture you would seek to conjure up about him that is not in line with what he has revealed about himself, it will be by nature worse. So we must get to the point where we, like the Apostle Paul, have our theology driving our worship, our doctrine flooding into our doxology. That's my hope. So, we continue this morning seeking to strengthen our theology, seeking to see the face of God. So, I ask you to go ahead and return to your feet, please. We return to this first chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. For the foreseeable future, we're going to be reading together from verse 3 all the way down through verse 14. This is the inerrant word of God. so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. All God's people said, amen. Father, would you make this book live to me? And would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself, would you show me my Savior, and would you make this book live to me? For it's in his name we pray, amen. So you may recall that last week I drew your attention to Paul's repeated use of the word bless here in verse 3. Blessed be God who has blessed us with spiritual blessings. An adjective, a verb, a noun. Blessed, blessed, blessing. All deriving from the same word. It's the Greek word from which we derive the word eulogy. The root word there is lego. It means to say or to tell. Now, whenever you put the letters E and U as a prefix on something, it means good. So what we have here is an indication that the idea of speaking well of something or telling about something that's good. And so as we trace this adjective, blessed, through the New Testament, we found that it's used just seven times, always of God, and always carrying the idea of praise. We concluded in our time together last week that man blesses God when he proclaims his goodness. Not a well wish, not a hope or a desire, a declaration, a proclamation of what we have seen in God. That God is good. God is worthy of all praise and honor and blessing. Now, once we shifted our focus away from the New Testament, we went back into the Old Testament. We found many more uses of this phrase, blessed be God, particularly in the Psalms. Blessed be the Lord God forever and ever, amen. Over and over, we found this Baruch, this Hebrew word of blessing, of praise spoken towards God, recognizing not merely his nature as the blessed one, not merely the goodness that is within him by nature, but the way in which he has poured that goodness into the lives of his people. We saw this in Psalm 28, 6. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard my pleas for mercy. Blessed be the Lord God, because he has blessed us. Now, surely that's the tone. Surely that's the intent behind Paul's blessing here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Now, he doesn't include the word for because here. We don't find him saying, blessed be God, because he has blessed us. But surely the idea, surely the thought is implied, isn't it? The apostle seems to be overwhelmed by all that he knows and all that he's about to say to us about God. His heart seems to me, I like to imagine, almost bursting with joy. He knows what he's about to reveal to us, this great mystery, the gospel that he had already preached to them before. He's about to remind them of all the goodness of God. He's recounting in his own heart, even as he writes, how the triune God of the universe has worked in perfect unity. God the Father... God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, from eternity past up until that very day, working in perfect unity to bring his saints into glory. And as Paul begins to think about this, as he sets as he down to, to paint this picture for the saints who are in Ephesus, as he prepares to show us just how radically for us this good God is, it's like he can't contain himself. It's like a compulsion. He can't keep the words back. He can't wait till the end of the letter. He can't wait till some other section. Before he even offers a prayer over the people, before he even praises God for what he's done in the saints in Ephesus, he's got to speak this word of blessing, this praise. Blessed are you, God, for all the ways that you have shown your goodness towards us. Now, As I told you last week, Paul is a magnificent worshiper of God. That's not often the first thing we think about him. And yet we know that he is. We sense it in all of his writings. We recognize that his religion, his theology, it didn't just get bound up in his mind. It didn't just capture his, it capture his thoughts, but it penetrated his heart. Again, I say doctrine flowing into doxology. Having that which he knew of God, that which he saw of God, overwhelm him, drive him to praise, stir his affections. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for he is has blessed us. Now as we prepare to move to that second section there, seems good to me that we're gonna take this verse, verse three in three sections. So as we move to that second section there, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. As we read these words, surely we realize that Paul cannot possibly be speaking in the same terms when he talks about the blessedness of God in the way that he has blessed us. That God blessing man in the way that we speak blessing to God, they cannot be perfectly equal. While God is the infinite and eternal blessed one, worthy of more honor and worship and praise and blessing than we could ever possibly muster. While all goodness in this world finds its source and its origin within him, we must ask, what has man ever given to God that was not already his? What could man possibly do that would cause the creator to worship or honor or praise his creatures in the same way that they praise him? It seems clear to me that when we say that man blesses God, what we're talking about is that we see, we rightly appraise, and then we give heartfelt acknowledgement to all that he is. You remember I said that when we say that blessed be the Lord, we're making a declaration This is an observation and a statement of truth. God is worthy of blessing by nature. It's an innate goodness that originates from within him, an attribute of God, his goodness. And then because of the way that he has freely chosen to allow that goodness to spill off onto his people. But when we say that God blesses man, he's not recognizing some goodness that's in us by nature. He's not thanking us for something that we gave him that he didn't otherwise have. Instead, what we're doing is we're seeing an act of his goodness flowing into our life. So we see that there's only one source of goodness. There's only one fount of blessing. It's all bound up in God. That God is blessed by nature. That we are blessed by grace. The source is the same. It all comes from and returns to him. All blessedness, all blessings, all goodness, it's wrapped up in God. All of it to the glory of God. And so, my hope this morning as we shift our focus towards how this blessed God blesses his people, my hope is that we'll find the answer to two questions. Number one, what does Paul mean by the phrase in Christ? That God has blessed us in Christ. Number two, what does Paul mean by spiritual blessings? God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Now, I've got to tell you, I've actually got a third question in there, and I scrapped it. it. It was there as late as Friday night. I ended up scrapping it, but then I brought it right back, just right now, actually. It seems to me that's a question worth asking. The question was, who is the us that Paul's referring to here? If Paul is praising God because of the way in which he has blessed some group called us... And if these blessings are so magnificent that they drive this brilliant man to praise, then wouldn't we be fools not to ask, who are the us? To whom do these blessings belong? The question would appear to be magnified as we trace Paul's pronouns down through this section of Ephesians. Verse 3, God has blessed us. Verse 4, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world that we should be blameless and holy. Verse five, he predestined us for adoption. Verse six, he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse seven, we have redemption through the blood of Christ. Verse eight, he lavished his grace upon us. Verse nine, he made known to us the mystery of his will. Verse 11, we have obtained an inheritance. We have obtained an inheritance. Verse 12, we are the first to hope in Christ. Verse 13, you also. You see the shift? Us? Us, us, we, us, you. Now you recall that Paul is writing to this church in Ephesus, and it's a church filled with Gentile believers. These are surely the you to whom Paul is writing. In fact, he makes this expressly clear when we get to the second chapter. Ephesians 2 verse 11. Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were, at that time, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. These are the you, the Gentiles, the outsiders, people to whom God had not originally given the covenants, the promise, the law, the prophets, the people who had not physically uh, descended from Abraham, people who were not born to the nation of Israel, The people that Jesus did not first come to to preach the gospel. These people, as he says, were at one time alienated and hopeless and without God in the world. This is the you. Logically then, we can deduce that the us must be Jews. The people to whom the covenants had been given. Those that had been born biologically to Father Abraham. Those that were from the nation of Israel. Those to whom Jesus had first come to preach the gospel that these were the us's and that this man called paul this hebrew-speaking pharisee from the tribe of benjamin he was the most us of all the us's that ever did us and he's writing to these gentile ewes so we might ask if paul is saying that these blessings belong to us that god has blessed us with every spiritual blessing and the you to whom he writes were Gentiles who were once strangers and alienated and without hope and without God in the world, does this mean that the recipients of this letter have no right to the blessings that he's writing about? That's a nasty trick. Do these spiritual blessings of God, are they only for the Jew? Well, the reason that I wrote this question and then I said, well, perhaps we don't need to answer it is because in part we answered it last week, didn't we? To some degree, we spoke about this that the God from whom all blessings flow, He is not just the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, not merely the God of Israel, but He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Access to the promises of God, they are not through familial ties to Abraham, they're through ties of faith to Christ. The same way that Abraham had access to these blessings, he looked forward in faith. To Jesus Christ that's the answer now we'll see in due time as we begin to work through this book together we'll find out that this is not only the answer but this is the great mystery that Paul had come to reveal that in Christ God has broken down the dividing wall that in Christ God has done away with the hostility that in Christ God has created one man in place of two Ephesians 2 13 as we continue on but now in Christ you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. No more separation based on race, ethnicity, nationality, bloodlines. No more separation between Jew and Gentile based on any of these things. One new people created in Christ Jesus and united, reconciled, brought to God. The Jews and the Gentiles, now fellow heirs of the same promises in God. Again, I say, these promises, these spiritual blessings, they don't belong to the Jews who are found in Israel. They belong to any man who is found faithful in Christ. And yet you must recognize there's still outsiders and insiders. This is always the case with the kingdom of God. These promises are not universal. They're not for the whole of mankind. And yet there's only one basis. There's only one question that must be asked Are you in Christ? No longer do you belong to Abraham. What tribe do you descend from? Are you from the people of Israel? The only question that matters in all the world, you want to lay hold of these blessings? You want eternal life? Are you in Christ? The we's here, the we's of whom Paul talks about, it isn't all of Jewish, the Jewish nation. The we's are the Jews who are in Christ. The you's are the Gentiles who are in Christ. And together, all of those who are in Christ have been re, uh, united to God, reconciled to God and can lay hold to these endless spiritual blessings. so if you look at the last paragraph here in our text verses eleven and twelve down through fourteen, you'll see that he I'll show you how how he brings all this together. he says in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. He's saying the we's, the we's, the Jews who are in Christ, we have an inheritance. We have hoped in Christ and we are to the praise of his glory. Now listen the way he uses almost identical language now to talk about the you's. In him you also, when you heard of the word of truth, in the gospel of your salvation, you believed in him. He said, we have hoped in Christ and you have believed in him. You see this? We were sealed with the, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. In the course of just one sentence, over the span of just one sentence, he goes to talking about yous and uses, to talking about our, together, joint heirs. We have an inheritance until we acquire possession of it, that you too, and we, we are all to the praise of his glory. Do you see this? This inheritance is theirs because they too have believed in Christ. Jew and Gentile, it makes no difference. The only question is, are you in Christ? Now understand that we don't think in these same terms today, do we? Jews and Gentiles, those, not very many people walk into a place like this and they say, well, you know, I'm not of Jewish heritage, so I don't know that I could possibly lay claim to the promises of God. But, dear friends, you must recognize that he's torn down every barrier in this. Free and slave. Male and female. Married and divorced. Teetotaler or absolute drunkard. You name it. Whatever it is that you think has, in some way, kept you on the outside of the promises of God. Whatever it is that you believe keeps you at arm's length, where you can always see see the promises, you can hear about the promises, you can watch as other people roll around and enjoy the promises of God, but you think that surely there's no place for me there. He says, would you be in Christ? And so you see how critical then this first question is. What does Paul mean when he says, in Christ? Christ. I'm certain that for some of you in this room, you've never really given this statement much thought. Never really taken much notice of it. But if you were to take the time this afternoon and you were to go and just read through all of Paul's letters, I'd recommend that, by the way. You want to get to know Paul? You want to better understand the book of Ephesians? Go read all of his letters. You'll start to notice these patterns in Paul's speech. Number one, you're going to notice the magnificent range that this man has in his writing. I made a post on Facebook after the barbecue auction yesterday. Thank you, by the way. We, we met and I think by some margin exceeded our, our hope, our goal to send our students to youth. And so I posted on our Facebook page a thank you. I promise you that anyone who knows me, they knew which staff member made that post because I always write the same. I've got a very limited range. I preach the same. I speak the same. I write the same. This man called Paul, he had an incredible range. And yet you'll find some similarities. And one of those is the use of this word, in Christ or in the Lord. Even when he doesn't use expressly these terms, you'll find it always there, the idea, the concept. Now by by my count, and this is a very unofficial count, by my count, he uses these words in Christ or in the Lord or in Jesus Christ. He uses these words somewhere in excess of 150 times. So if we look just to this first section of his letter to the Ephesians, you'll find it a dozen times by my count. In Christ, or in the beloved, or in him. So clearly, in the mind of Paul, this is a defining issue. The most important thing for us to know about a Christian. By the way, you'll notice that Paul doesn't use the word Christian. In the first century, this was used by non-believers to be an insult. To be a Christian. A little Christ. This was meant to be a jab. Now, eventually, the church adopted this as a moniker. We've gladly embrace this today. We call ourselves Christian. This is right, and this is good, but that's not the word that Paul uses. Time and time and time again, he talks about himself as being in Christ. Think about the way he talked about his heavenly vision. 2 Corinthians 12, 2, he says, speaking of himself here, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Paul is a man in Christ. Not only Paul, but his brethren. All those who believe, all the saints, all who are faithful in Christ, they are in Christ. So we first encountered this phrase back in the very first verse. You remember this is a letter from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Faithful in Christ Jesus. You may remember that we discovered that probably what Paul has in mind here is he's not talking about a man who is in himself faithful, and trustworthy but a man who has placed his faith in christ who finds christ to be the trustworthy one who looks to the promises of god and even when everything around him says this is foolishness you're going to stake your eternity on this you're going to bet your family's future on this you're going to go all in on this that a faithful one the one who is faithful in christ jesus he sees the face of christ in this and he continues on in faith Not trusting in his own abilities to hang on. Trusting in Christ's ability to do what he says he'll do. That this is what it means to be faithful in Christ. But is this all that it means to be in Christ? When Paul says that a man is in Christ, is he just pointing to the object of our faith? Let's consider again a very brief survey. I pray that you've seen my pattern. I'm just showing you the way I study the Bible here. You get this, right? I find a word, I don't know what it means, and I say, how else does Paul use this? And I trace it out through the immediate context. The immediate context of this letter, how does he use it in other letters? I'll go to other books as well. But if I wanna know what somebody means by what they say, shouldn't I go and consider in what other context has he said it? So even here within this first section, look at the way he uses this phrase. Verse three, God has blessed us in Christ. Verse four, God has chosen us in him. Verse 5, God has adopted us through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, God has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7, God has redeemed us in him. Clearly this is much more than just the object of our faith. Clearly this isn't just about our faith at all, but rather the realm. The realm in which all of God's blessings, all of the goodness, all that he has for his people comes to us. The way that God pours out his goodness These spiritual blessings upon his children. In fact, the way that you can become a child of God, it's by being in him. It's all in Christ. That's the only way that any of this works. It isn't as if you come to Christ in faith and you are justified and then you look somewhere else to receive these blessings. It isn't as if you only come to Christ in repentant faith at the moment of your salvation, at the moment of your conversion, at the moment seeking justification and then you look somewhere else and wonder, now where do I go to get these blessings I've heard so much about? There is no such thing as a spiritual blessing unless they are given us in Christ. He's the sole mediator of all of it. All that God is for us, all that God has for us, all that we could ever hope for, it comes to us through and in Christ. That's the primary message of this section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's made clear by the way he prays right after this, isn't it? Paul's deepest desire, the Ephesians' greatest need, is for them to know what it means to be in Christ. Their problem is they did not recognize who they were. They did not recognize all that God was for them in Christ. That's the message of this section of Ephesians. Now, you see, when people found out that as we got towards the end of Mark's gospel and we started talking about where do we go next, and people found out that we were considering going to the book of Ephesians, there was a number of people that said, oh, Are you sure you're ready to teach about predestination? Because for many people, that's really what the book of Ephesians is all about. What they know about Ephesians, especially these first two chapters of Ephesians, what they know about Ephesians is, that's that portion of the Bible that's most concerned with the sovereignty of God in salvation. The words that make the headlines, the words that catch everybody's attention, even I would imagine still when we read the text. is I've not defined for you predestination yet. I've not told you what it means to be chosen in him. We've not not talked yet about the elect. But even as I read past these words, words like chosen and elect and predestined, those are the ones that capture all the headlines. But it's this phrase that Paul is most concerned about. In Christ. You see, Paul didn't sit down to write some theological treatise about soteriology. He's not so much concerned about the how. He reveals the how. He's concerned about the what. Who are you in Christ? What is yours in Christ? What are these spiritual blessings that God has given us in Christ? And yet, as I told you during our introductory sermon, it's like Paul has been given this this vision. As if God has allowed Paul up into heaven to to pull back the curtain, truly a cosmic view of our salvation, to show us what God was doing before the beginning of time, from eternity past. So Paul begins. as Paul shows us what it means to be in Christ His call encourages us to grasp hold of and to think rightly about what it means for us to be in Christ. He doesn't start with the moment of our conversion. He doesn't begin with our experiences. He goes all the way to eternity past with God, the origin of it all. You see, dear children, this is where so many people go wrong. We start with man and we work our way up to God. We start with our experiences and our emotions and our thoughts and our philosophy and then we set our boundaries around the ways that God can and cannot interact with man with regards to our redemption. The problem is that when they do this, not only do they miss what God has actually said, they rob themselves of all the assurance. So much of the joy that is found in knowing that I'm in Christ and it isn't something that happened today, began in eternity past. It's only then that we can see how radically for us God is. So Paul doesn't make this mistake. He no sooner mentions these spiritual blessings, these blessings which have been given to the saints, that he immediately directs our attention to eternity past. He doesn't let you catch your breath, does he? He says, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Whoa, 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 whoa. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Do you understand? Do you understand? Again, he, he doesn't allow you to, to, to shift your focus. He, he praises God for what he knows that God has done. He, he sticks his toe out there to say, and what he's done is he's given you every spiritual blessing in Christ, in the heavenly places. But then before your mind can wander, before you can start trying to define what these spiritual blessings are, before you try to start determining how they came to be yours, before your minds can shift or settle or focus on anything else, he's right there. He says, even as, kathos is the word in Greek. It can also be translated as just as. God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. I want to speak, stick right here, because I want to speak very plainly and and clearly at this point. The Apostle Paul, when he thinks about these spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ, he realizes, he desperately wants us to realize that they are not grounded, they do not originate at some moment in time when you placed your faith in Christ, but rather they are rooted in the eternal mind and purposes of God. Even before the beginning of time, having to decreed to send his son to live and die and rise again for the salvation of his people. As God looked forward to that day in love, he predestined and elected and chose us in such a way that from that moment forward, he would never think about us apart from Christ. Let me try to state that another way because I want you to understand this. There is joy, there is hope, there is assurance, there is worship flowing out of this truth. Before there was space or matter or time in what can only be called an absolute and utter mystery of God, in the mind and purposes of God, you were already united to Christ. Before the foundation of the world, you were chosen in Christ. So before you ever were, Before there was a world, before there was time, before there was space, before the foundation of the world, whenever God thought of you, you were in Christ. Whenever God thought of Christ, you were chosen in him. Paul says this again in his very last letter. We think his last letter, his second letter to Timothy. 2 Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. Do You see the joy and the confidence that this brings. Knowing that these spiritual blessings, knowing that the promises of God, knowing that your union with Christ, it's not bound up in you. It's not reliant upon you. You don't need to be constantly looking around grading your life. You don't need to be consumed with judging, what kind of day did I have today? Was my faith good or was my faith weak? Was my faith great or was my faith small? This never-ending introspection that completely drives a man to madness, that robs him of joy, that robs him of all insurance. We don't have to do that any longer because we can recognize that in the mind of God, you have been in Christ since eternity past. That all that God is for you in Christ It's not grounded in you. It's grounded in and accomplished according to his eternal purposes. Now, please understand, this does not mean that your union to Christ through faith is meaningless or unnecessary or insignificant. Far from it. Without true saving faith, there can be no union. Man cannot be in Christ unless he is is brought to place his faith in him. Paul really meant what he said when he spoke to these believers and he said that they were once sons of disobedience and children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. You were genuinely separated from Christ until that moment when in love, God made you alive together with him. You are truly outside of Christ and at enmity with God until in him you also heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. Saving faith is not an afterthought. It's not a technicality. It's the necessary instrument by which you are united to Christ. You cannot be in Christ unless you place your faith in Christ. And yet we're not playing word games here. We're not talking gibberish. As nearly impossible it is for our mind to grasp this. We should be driven to our knees and worship by the reality that our union with Christ, that union which we realized in real time as someone shared the gospel, we saw him for who he was and we placed our faith in him, that that union was grounded in eternity past in the mind and the purposes of God. This is perhaps the most profound and humbling mystery in all the universe. So much so when I saw it, more inside baseball, okay? Here's what happens. I think I see something in Scripture and I dig. Did this guy ever say this anywhere else? Is this the only place that I seem to see this? Or has Paul said this in other ways, in other places? You need to be careful about defining big pieces of theology based on just one single statement. Now you can do that. All scripture is true, and all scripture is powerful, and all scripture is is, is worthy of aligning our hearts. We look and say, does he say this anywhere else? And I think that he says this somewhere else, but there's still this itch in the back of my head because I'm fixing to stand up in front of people and I'm going to tell them that they were united to Christ before the foundation of the world. But somehow they lived 10 or 20 or 30 years of their life at enmity with God and outside of Christ. But I don't want to take the pressure off yet. You see, as soon as I go and look what some other man said outside of the Scriptures, the pressure valve comes off, and then I'm going to just echo what that man has said. That's my nature. That's our nature, isn't it? So we dig in the Scripture, and we work in the Scripture. Do I really see this? Is this really what I'm seeing and not what somebody else told me to see? And so I dig, and I claw, and I stretch, and I try to find it. Maybe I grab some brothers around me, and I say, hey, let me say these words to you. These make you flinch? Let me show you the Scripture. Do you see this too? I do theology and community. It isn't until I get to the end of that that then I'll think, okay, let me go see what some other men that I respect have said. And you have no idea the sigh of relief I found when I came to the words of R.C. Sproul and found out that I'm not out of my mind. He said that from eternity, God considered the elect to be in Christ. Before our mysterical union affected with us in time, it is already a present reality in the mind of God. Just as Christ invaded time from eternity 2,000 years ago, so our eternal union intrudes in time through the work of the Spirit. What has always existed in the mind of God in eternity becomes a time-bound reality in the heart of the regenerate. R.C. Sproul is not Paul. He is not Christ. He is not an Aaron. I disagree with him. He baptizes babies, for goodness sake. Not anymore. He's with the Lord. You don't take these words just because I've said them. You don't take them because R.C. Sproul said them. You go dig for yourself and see, is that not the picture that God has painted? That God is giving you gifts in Christ before there ever was a world. That God was giving you gifts in Christ, blessings in Christ, grace in Christ, before the foundation of the world, before the coming of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. And then decide for yourself, what do I do with that? So I suppose that covers, if I'm right, I may be wrong. Come to me, by the way, if you think I'm wrong. I'd I'd love to sit down and visit, I promise you I will not debate you. Not on something like this. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to sit down and visit about it and see what you see in the scriptures. But I suppose if I'm right that that covers at least part of the how. You are in Christ because in love before the foundation of the world, God determined that it would be so. And then in time, at the appointed time, through the preaching of the word and the power of the spirit, you came to life, you saw Christ, You placed your saving faith in him and you were united to him. Now, God willing, we are going to have many, many more opportunities. Again, I tell you, I see something like a dozen times here in this first chapter where Paul seems to be hinting or pointing or expressly saying something about being in Christ. We're going to have plenty more opportunities to unpack this. So do not allow yourself to be frustrated if this doesn't make sense to you. Again, I bet you I spent, I bet you I spent 10 hours this week struggling with that. I don't expect you in 10 minutes through the bumbling mouth of a, of a pastor to somehow automatic, automatically get it. So don't get frustrated if this doesn't make sense to you. Don't, make, don't get frustrated if this doesn't immediately click in your mind. Don't get frustrated if you think that I'm just out of my mind. Come to the scriptures and allow the tension to sit. Praise God for who he's revealed himself to be and then trust him. Trust him. Dear friends, if we believe in the sovereignty of God, then we believe that everything we know comes from him. The ones who see God in Scripture and rightly understand what they read, they're not the smart ones. We know nothing apart from the working of God. But we still haven't answered the question yet. I asked, what does Paul mean by the phrase in Christ? Not how does a man come to be in Christ, although that's critical. We need to know how we came to be in Christ. Paul wants us apparently to know how we came to be in Christ. But if we don't rightly understand what it means to be in Christ, again, I tell you, we rob ourselves of joy, of assurance. Our worship falls flat. This is important that we know what does it mean to be in Christ. So it seems to me with the time we have available that it might help us some to shift over to another of Paul's letters, a letter that many men take in parallel with the book of Ephesians. It's the book of Colossians. Now, we could go all over the scriptures and, and find Paul's references to this, but I think we find here in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4, a beautiful picture, maybe a maybe a summation of what he has in mind. He says this, Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ. In God, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I encourage you to go home and read those words again. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says that we are so united with Christ, that, that a part of what it means to be in Christ, that we're so, so closely connected to him that we can rightly say that we've been crucified with Christ. He says here that not only have we died with Christ, but that we've been raised with him. He goes even further to say that we are seated with Christ at the right hand of God. This matches up with what he says in the second chapter of Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 6, he says that God has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So you're following this this logic. Paul is saying that you have not simply come to Christ from the outside. You've not merely come and placed your faith upon Christ as one from the outside, but that you're united to him. Elsewhere, we'll read Christ himself talking about a vine and branches. Paul talking about a head and a body. That that we place our faith in Christ and we ourselves come in to Christ. That there's our life. There's our direction. That apart from him, we can do nothing. That the whole of who we are is now bound up in Christ. And that because of this, because of our union with Christ, that all that he has done that all that he has accomplished, that all that he does today, even as he reigns in heaven at the right hand of the Father, that in all of that we are joined to him, his life, his death, his resurrection, his heavenly, heavenly uh, reign, united to him. Again, not simply from afar. We don't simply look to the things that Christ does from a distance and say, I love you for what you have done, Jesus Christ, as right as that is. We recognize that we ourselves have been united with him so that the things that can be said of him can be said of us. That's what it means to be truly and inseparably joined with Christ, to be in him. So much so that we can look forward in hope, according to Paul, knowing that when Christ comes, he who is our life appears, then we also will appear with him in glory. Jesus is coming back and we're coming with him. Having seen him and become like he is. You see, as we come to Christ, as we're united in Christ, Paul also talks about it like an adoption. I want you to think about what happens in families where there's an adoption. You welcome a child into your home, and from that day forward, they have full rights of a child. They're yours. You will not forsake them. You will not abandon them. You will not send them away. They're yours. But they bring some other things with them, don't they? Then we come to Jesus Christ, in our union with him, we're adopted. We, too, are sons of God. The full blessings of eternity, they belong to us. They're fully given to us. And yet, the flesh is still there. It's not as though we're fully perfect in that moment. And so we long for that day. We long for that day when we exit this life and we see him as he is. We long even more than that for the day when he returns. The one that we have died with, the one that we have been raised with, the one that we are seated at the right hand of God with, we return with him in glory. That's the ultimate hope. pray that you see this i pray that you'll do some studies of your own because the reality is that none of this really made sense to me none of the blessings of god none of evangelism none none of the way i talked about being a christian made any sense until i understood that the christian is in christ that this isn't just a fancy way of saying believing jesus there's a reality here Again, we're not playing word games. We're not speaking gibberish. That by faith, you are so united in Christ that therein is your life. You start to understand then how any of these promises can be given. Don't you wonder? How could God give me any blessings? I'm not just saying, oh, because I'm such a wretch and oh, because I'm such a sinner and oh, because I'm so worthy. I mean, on what basis does he give me any blessings? See, for years, I was what you called a confrontational evangelist. That's not somebody that shares the gospel and inserts your haircut at the same time. It's somebody that goes out for the express purpose of sharing the gospel. Buddy, I was like a dog with a bone. I I was a man with a one-track mind. Those people in Walmart did not want to see me coming. I shared the gospel with every cashier. Then when they called the manager, I shared the gospel with the manager. And then when they ran me off, I went and shared it with poor people just trying to buy a loaf of bread. I shared the gospel. If I could get my hands on you for, I didn't actually touch people, but if I could get close enough to you for five minutes, you were gonna hear the gospel, and then I was gonna invite you to say the prayer. You know the prayer. the say the prayer and you get saved prayer. And I have to tell you, I didn't find very many people willing to say the prayer. Apparently, I was better at the confrontation than I was the evangelism, but I kept swinging. But but that's not that's not why I shifted my focus. It wasn't because I couldn't get people to say the prayer. And I, now you, you you've got to hear me. I do not say there's anything wrong with knocking on doors. I do not say there's anything wrong with going to the park. I do not say there's anything wrong with going shop shopping. Seeking to find someone that you can tell the good news about Jesus Christ. What a glorious thing. Some of my favorite saints, some of the men I most, I respect most in all the world are those that always had the gospel on their lips. Never letting an opportunity go by without telling somebody, let me tell you the reason for my hope. And I can assure you that my motives were sincere. I I truly believe That of the hundreds of people that I shared the gospel with, surely God has saved some. But here's what always troubled me. Anytime I would get somebody to follow me in the prayer, and again, I say not many people at Walmart would do this, more often than not, it was at VBS. We would sit children down and I'd get them to follow me in the prayer. God, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know that my sin has separated me from you. I believe that your son came to die for my sins and that three days later he rose from the grave. I turn from my sin and I trust in Christ. Please give me forgiveness today and a home in heaven when I die. They would follow me in this prayer and then I would give them a big hug and I would promise them that no matter what else happened in the rest of their life, eternal life was theirs. All the blessings of God were theirs, but it never made sense. How how can this be true? How how can reciting, repeating 57 words that I fed you to say, how can that be the key to unlocking all of God's blessings? Now, Now listen to me very closely. Some of you people were saved in exactly this way, and I'm not making light of that. I need you to know that my wife kneeled in our living room floor and she was completely transformed, united to Christ, offering a prayer exactly like this. Do I lie? I evangelized my three daughters and all of them prayed exactly this way. Anytime I talk about the prayer, and I, and I understand that I always do it with a biting tone. I always do it with a little bit of a... A little, bit of a little bit of a jab about the prayer because we don't find the prayer in scripture. But anytime I talk about the prayer, people believe that I'm attacking their salvation, that I'm questioning their experience, that I'm saying that because on one Sunday morning they felt the Holy Spirit prick them in their heart, they walked down the aisle, they held hands with their pastor, they offered a prayer, the next week they were battered. Now I'm saying somehow that's not good enough. I'm saying God can't use that to save them. I am sure that Billy Graham has led countless people to Christ. I'm not questioning the sufficiency. I'm not questioning the genuineness of your conversion. I'm not doubting your salvation. I'm not trying to cause you to doubt your salvation. But the point is that in my mind, the prayer became the thing. The prayer became the focus. The prayer became the path. Again, I say the prayer became the key to unlocking all of God's blessings. It became all about the prayer. And I know this sounds somewhat silly standing in this church as we live today, but I promise you, there are countless, there were countless young couples that found themselves getting real anxious when their kids hit eight or 10 or 12 and they hadn't said the prayer yet. And there was a whole lot more parents that walked around with their chest held high feeling real secure because their kids had said the prayer. And what I came to realize is, that we had taken the infant baptism of Roman Catholicism and we had traded it for the Southern Baptist prayer. Say these 57 words and you're in. So the whole thing just always fell out of whack to me. I've heard from some of you. We talked about this a lot when I first came as pastor because there was big shifts in how we were doing things. So Scripture took us there and we talked about it. And I've heard from a number of you texted me and you said, it never made sense to me either. I, I know that prayer wasn't a spell. I know that I had to believe it. And so I'd say the prayer and nothing would change. I go, well, I gotta try it again with gusto. I gotta really mean it this time. But the problem is that I, I had so many people that They prayed the prayer and then they wandered away and they made abundantly clear that they had never trusted in Christ and they had no desire to honor him as Lord. They walked through life with a damning self-assurance based on a prayer and a promise that I had no business promising them. While on the flip side of that, there were sincere believers, true followers of Christ driving themselves to ulcers having to wonder having to having to doubt whether they really meant it when they offered the prayer they get caught up looking at their own life they, they know that they love christ they know that they place their faith in him but do i have enough love is my faith strong enough i know that to love god is to do what he commands am i obeying him enough do i love him strongly enough is my faith enduring in the right way and then they're trapped because they know I can't work my way to salvation, so the answer isn't going and attacking the sins. What I'm left with? Well, the, I guess I got the prayer again. Do you understand? Everybody's a loser. The deceived feel secure. The saved, they're miserable. But, beloved, once we understand this, the source, The origin, the only way by which any of the blessings of God come to you is because you are in Christ. Everything changes. You stop looking at yourself. You stop focusing on yourself. You stop grading yourself. Do you understand? You want assurance? Quit thinking about yourself so dang much. I've had a lot of quotes today. I'm going to quote John Murray. His book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. I would encourage you to read it sometime he says it must be remembered that the efficacy of faith does not reside in itself all the efficacy unto salvation resides in the savior it's not faith that saves but faith in jesus christ it's not even faith in christ that saves but it's christ who saves through faith The specific character of faith is that it looks away from itself and finds its whole interest and object in Christ. He is absorbing preoccupation of faith. Again, I say, stop looking at yourself. You will never find enough faith. You will never find enough goodness. You will never find enough love for God to warrant the promises that are meant to be yours. This was never his plan, don't you see? Again, I say, it isn't that you come to Christ in faith and then he turns you into the kind of person that's worthy of blessings. It's that you come to faith in Christ, you're united to him, and he has earned the blessings. Will there be change? Absolutely. Absolutely. He compares it to a husband and a wife. Not... That we look at our marriage and say that must be what Christ and the church are like. That we look to Christ and the church and say that's what marriage is meant to be. That that's the true picture. Yet we see it perfectly there. That when you're joined together with your bride, that everything that is hers becomes yours. In our case, debt. And isn't that the way it goes? He receives my debt and I receive his riches. And as I grow, as I see him more clearly, I learn what pleases him. I delight in pleasing him. I don't have to wonder if Amanda's going to change the locks on me because my love wasn't strong enough in this day. Because my performance wasn't good. good, Because I didn't mean my vows, I didn't have the right tone when I said them. And yet the more I see of her, the more I know of her, the more I learn of her, the more my affections towards her are changed. Yes, I will be a new man. Dear children, this is what it means to be in Christ. You have looked to him and determined that he is who he says he is. A deceived man will never do this. Do you understand? A deceived man is always inwardly focused, consumed by the flesh, Satan whispering, whispering hush, hushes in his ears, and all is okay, all is okay, all's okay. Remember that prayer. But you know that nothing is good within your flesh. You know that you have nothing within you that can earn the blessings of God. Not in a billion years. Not your faith on your very best day. That there's nothing within you, there was never meant to be anything from within you that earned the blessings of God. It's that you've looked to Christ, you've trusted in him, and now the union is there. The union which began, which found its source and its root, by the way, in eternity past. Therefore, it's not something that you have caused. It's not something that you can lose. So you look to Christ, to his life and his death and his resurrection, and you believe the words of Paul when he says, if God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I'm out of time. I'm out of time. But I'd encourage you to go back, reread that section in Colossians two where he says that we're to set our minds on the things that are above, that we're not not on the things that are on earth, because we have died and our life is hidden with Christ. I do want to point one more thing out to you. I, I, I can't have you leaving this place without saying something about spiritual blessings. For, for many believers, we, we read a text like this, and we, we, we think of only ethereal, intangible. I, I guess we, we think of spiritual blessings like the like the fruit of the Spirit, maybe it's just love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and that's that's all. But as we go to the way that Paul talks about the resurrection and he talks about the resurrected body and he talks about how the the body will be powerful and imperishable and honorable and it will be a spiritual body and we talked about this I looked you dead in the eye Andrew I remember it more than any sermon I've ever preached we were talking about the transfiguration we were talking about the glorified body we were talking about the promise of the resurrection and I looked at you and I said Andrew that body won't do for the pleasures of heaven nor will mine And the promise of God, as he says, I will make you into something that can bear up under the fount of endless blessings that I have stored up for you. And these spiritual blessings that God has for us, I have to imagine that they're very much in this same likeness. These blessings which are ours in heaven, they're preparing us for an eternity in the presence of God. That everything you need, redemption, forgiveness, adoption, cleansing, all of these things and much more, All that you need to glorify God, all that you need to be prepared to make sure that your face doesn't melt off when you see Christ as he really is, he will give you those. Not just a few, not just a little. He's not holding some back to see if you've been a good boy today. Every, all, super abundantly, all the spiritual blessings have been given given to you you will experience them at the proper time they will you will find them right at the moment of greatest need but dear friends it's time we started living like and isn't it it's time we recognize that we are sojourners in this place that we are in fact caught up with christ into heaven on this day that the victory has been secured, that our eternity has been guaranteed, and that glory waits. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. I thank you for this day, and I thank you for this people. God, I I wouldn't want to do this with any other people. You've made them different. You've made them different. These people love you. They love your word. They love your people. Father, I pray that you'd bless them. Glorify yourself now. Through your son's precious name we pray. Amen.